Welcome to Parallax by Anka Kalra, a podcast produced by Radcliffe Cardiology to bring you a new angle of all things cardiology and the best from the US Cardiology Review. Published every second Monday, Anka Kalra, MD, interventional cardiologist at the Cleveland Clinic in Ohio, USA, speaks with legendary cardiologists, reviews late-breaking trials and interviews authors of our latest and best US cardiology review articles. We call them hashtag audio articles. Parallax is the effect whereby the position or direction of an object appears to differ when viewed from different positions. So this podcast is your fix of reliable updates on all things cardiology by someone from a non-traditional background who is always looking at the industry from a new angle. Now, here's your host, Anka Kalra, MD. Hello, everyone. Um, well, I've been wanting to do this with her for the longest time that I can remember. Uh, it's just that you know, our schedules have not, um, you know, met with a, a time where we could do this. Um, you know, now I happen to be on call and it's a Sunday and I'm, I'm in a hotel in Akron and, you know, she's uh, in, in quarantine in, in Canada. Um, my guest today is, is someone who I consider a mentor and a friend and, you know, someone I've reached out to on several occasions uh, whenever I've had questions uh, professionally and also personally, and uh, she's been always welcoming and and extremely collaborative and kind and and very nice. And uh, I know that she's uh, revered uh, among uh, fellows and faculty and colleagues alike. Um, she's she's very well liked and and rightly so. My guest today is Dr. Gulati. Uh, Martha Gulati is a professor of medicine and chief of cardiology at uh, University. Um, of Arizona in Phoenix, um, Arizona, and um, she, you know, has done uh, incredible work uh, for, uh, you know, representing women uh, in not only cardiovascular medicine, but medicine at large. Uh, so with that introduction, Martha, welcome on the show. Thank you for having me. I'm honored to be on the show. Uh, no, well, thanks for taking the time. Uh, and I'm glad that you and your family are doing well. Um, and um, uh, you know, like you and I were talking, uh, you know, I think uh, I want the focus um, of this episode to be about uh, sexism in cardiovascular medicine, uh, you know, let alone medicine. And I, I think I'm going to use uh, the article which was recently published and ha has now been retracted, thankfully, um, uh, but was published uh, in Journal of Vascular Surgery by, uh, you know, a few authors, uh, you know, I don't really know if they're all uh, faculty of vascular surgery or, you know, a combination of faculty and, and residents or, or fellows in training. Uh, but the article, um, I think, explicitly was talking about unprofessional behavior among women, particularly in, in vascular surgery and commenting on, um, you know, what they do outside of work and, um, and you know, specifically commented on uh, you know, attire and, you know, how, uh, you know, they would dress if, if not at work, which, you know, to me was uh, surprising. Actually, the article was, was brought to my attention uh, by my wife um, on, a, on a weekday night. And, you know, I, I was quite frankly shocked to, to see that this was, you know, peer reviewed and then published uh, in, in an index journal. But why, why don't we start talking about, about this and, uh, and, and what you think? I think this article, you know, created a lot of um, 
excitement, not in a good way, in the cardiology community, but in the medical community in general at large. I think everybody started talking about this. It, you're right. It not only it got released, you know, they they presented this at a national meeting in 2019. It was published recently, and. The surprising thing was, is that it even went through, you know, it had to get into such a prestigious journal. It went through peer review. It went through probably an editorial board. And they also had an IRB to do this study. So somebody reviewed this study in advance. And I think what was most insulting about it was how they, you know, some of the things that they they used to describe unprofessional behavior. And specifically the one that I think hit most women was the inappropriate attire, which they said included pictures in underwear, provocative Halloween costumes, and provocative posing in bikinis and swimwear. And I'm reading that directly from their paper. Additionally, they had three men um, who were the ones evaluating it. So they talked about how they made these decisions and it was three men that were deciding was this appropriate or inappropriate. Now, a lot of people commented on social media that this must have been all written by men, but actually there was one female author. So I, I don't even want to make it about male bashing or anything, but I do think that um, its viewpoint of making judgments on how people live outside of work certainly strike with women because of two things. One, when we are outside of the workplace, you know, how we live and what we do is really our private matter. And secondly, I think that there's judgments placed on women that that even in the professional setting that have nothing to do with the professional setting. So we put up with it there, but then somehow we're supposed to live in a different way or not show people how we live. They even made a comment in this paper that they were surprised in all the different social media uh, directions that they looked at, which included Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, how few people put privacy settings on. That was the way that they were able to see what was going on. And I, I think that, um, you know, of course you can use those privacy settings if that's what you want. If you're worried about you know, what you want to present. If you're just communicating with your family, for example, on Facebook, maybe you should keep that private. But there, as you and I both know, we use Twitter to communicate with not just our professional communication with our colleagues, but also to help our patients know the information, access science, but also we share bits of ourselves. I mean, and, and that makes us human. And that's exactly what we are. We're humans and we we have thoughts outside of our work. We have families that we take care of. We have a sadness, you know, things that happen in our life that we sometimes share. And, and some people choose not to, but we also have politics as well. And I know, you know, we always debate. We all probably have these internal debates. Do I put my politics out there? And for some people, that's what makes them complete that you know where I stand on things. And for some people, they won't. But these are choices that we all get to make. I think when I read the paper initially, I was like, well, you know, they said clearly unprofessional content included uh, violations of HIPAA. 
Absolutely. I agree. Like if we find that's a, something that we all are taught that you don't violate HIPAA. If you're on social media, be very careful. You know, um, early on in social media, I used to send messages to my friends and colleagues saying, hey, you, you know, there's a way that you could identify that patient. You better take it down. And people have always appreciated that. And that's become sort of our standard as we become more familiar. I agree with that. And I agree offensive comments and profanity are probably things that, you know, you can decide that, you know, your work, every workplace will have what are the things that they allow you to to put up and you should be well aware of them. But even things like holding an, a, a, a drink in your hand, that's really not unprofessional. And I don't know that we should be judging people. I certainly think we have no business a, a assessing somebody's attire because we have different standards for men and women, apparently, especially by this article. And I think that that's what really hit home to the community when we're already talking so much about the differences about how female physicians are treated on a day-to-day -day basis. We've had this Time's Up healthcare movement talking about all these differences in uh, both sexism in the workplace and under payment for what a woman physician does compared to a male physician. And the differences in us achieving leadership. And yet now we're seeing papers that are judging us on how we live. Uh, yes, you know, uh, thank you for uh, explaining uh, the, the stance on this. Uh, I think it's important that um, it is heard from, from someone like yourself and I. I'm completely on board and completely agree that, you know, what we share on social media uh, is, is a choice. Um, you know, some people will be comfortable with with something and some won't be, uh, you know, some will feel that this is too much information to be shared online, uh, you know, out um, in the world and, you know, some will be um, totally fine with it. And I think it's it's a personal choice. As long as you're not, uh, you know, tearing someone down or as, as long as you're not violating, uh, you know, like you said, HIPAA, uh, I, I think, um, you know, what someone shares online is is their personal choice. And, um, you know, to be judged uh, on it, particularly, um, you know, to be to be judged for, you know, how you are, how you want to be, uh, what you want to drink or eat or wear, um, I, I think is just uh, taking it really too far. Uh, and, you know, like you said, I mean, you know, looks like that this was approved by 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 an institutional review board um, and, you know, flags were not raised then. And then, uh, you know, it having to go through. Uh, you know, hopefully one or two rounds of peer review, then editorial board meeting, uh, then, you know, having it published, you know, and before that even presented at a meeting. I mean, it, it went through several rounds of peer review and, and it, it's a reflection of, you know, to me, I think it's, it's, uh, it's an indirect uh, measurement of what people may think or perceive of women colleagues um, in, in general, and, and you know, is it, someone is something qu quite frankly that I am not completely uh, exposed to. Uh, maybe because I I do not indulge in such talk, or I, I do I do not have those those ideas or, or that mindset. Uh, because you know, fortunately for me, I've been surrounded by amazing women. You know, whether it's my mom or you know my my sisters or 
you know, my, my wife. And I think that that's the difference to some degree is that, um, you know, when I, I, I think I feel this most often when people are married to other physicians or, you know, place a large value of respect on, you know, their mothers or sisters. And but especially when they have somebody in medicine, they are hearing the stories of the difference of how women are treated compared to men. And they may not be doing it, but they're well aware that it happens. And, and this is the conversation that we're having. You know, we want more, you know, you, you hear this cause you're, I know you, you share our social media and you're what we call a hashtag he for she. And we're always talking about how do we get more women into cardiology? How do we get women into these male dominated specialties where we feel the diversity both of race and of sex needs to be part of our community. We will be, if we look more like our patients, we're going to take better care of our patients. And we're always talking about this. But when we see sexism so blatantly, this is just another way to make this environment less welcoming. So to these vascular surgeons that felt that this was okay to put out there and, and you know, even presented it at their national meeting in March of 2019, they, so they put it out there and that people didn't think that this was actually something they should have stood up against. That doesn't help women decide, hey, I want to be a vascular surgeon. In fact, it does the exact opposite. It makes them feel like I won't be welcome there. And, you know, we have we day to day have these sort of what we call micro microaggressions, things that occur to women in the field, no matter what rank they are, whether they're medical students, whether they're residents, whether they're fellows, whether they're attendings and making and, and sometimes you're powerless. You might bring them home. You might bring them to the people that care about you and your friends and your social circle and even your mentors about how to deal with it. But it it is very real. And I, I know you follow many female cardiologists and you see us rant and rail over the things that happen that we think are unjust. And we know that this is a big reason why we ha don't have enough women in our field. And we're all trying to solve it, but it starts by identifying these problems. So if this paper at least brought up the conversation, I guess that's the good that came from this paper, because I think that sometimes people don't know why there isn't enough women. Well, this is a blatant example of why, but we have smaller examples or examples that happen in a more isolated or private situation that aren't, you know, seen. And, you know, it's kind of like the things that we see right now, like if you have a video camera and you can record it, then people, you know, now it's an outrage because you actually have evidence. But I'm telling you, these things happen on a daily basis and, um, you know, they do get shared. I mean, in anonymous ways, I think you might have seen one of our, our friends and colleagues, uh, uh, Danielle Bellardo, uh, posted basically everyone on Instagram. She asked, you know, if they'd experienced, um, you know, some forms of sexism. And she just got bombarded with uh, messages from people explaining different acts that happened to them, some horrifying, some 
some definitely like we know they happen. I read them. I'm like, oh yeah, that happened to me. Oh yeah, that one happened to me. And you're kind of like, oh, I just kind of, you know, we just let it pass because we it almost becomes normal in our world. You just kind of can't fight every battle. So you just you're like, okay, that that happened. But when will it stop? Because I, you know, I watched my mother's generation talk about how can we make the world better for our daughters. And guess what? Your wife and I are still having that conversation <laughs> about how do we make it better for the next generation? Because we don't want them to experience what we've experienced, whether it's the pay inequity or whether it's the, you know, sort of locker room talk that occurs, or whether it's the microaggressions or the lack of leadership opportunities, or where you have to laugh at jokes because you're the only woman in the room and you know it's inappropriate, but you just, to survive, you have to do that. Um, yes, Martha. So I, you know, educate me about this. And I'm, I'm sure um, in educating me, you're going to educate the listeners as well. Um you know, I, I want to be um, someone who's who's sensitive about microaggressions. And, you know, I, you know, welcome, uh, you know, uh, female colleagues, women colleagues. And um, I, I, I want to be, um, you know, a good colleague to them. And if so, educate me, you know, so give me examples of microaggressions, you know, so that, you know, as someone who uh, truly wants to see this change and, and want, wants this to go away, I could be someone who could then, you know, stand up and, and, you know, correct the colleague from whom that microaggression occurred, uh, you know, so, so tell us, give us a few examples here. Well, I think one example that people won't necessarily see because they often happen just to on one on one, uh, you know, to students and residents and fellows and attendings, all of us can hear these is, you know, a great example was given by a medical student to me where they asked their classmate if the seat was taken um, in the, in where they were about to sit. And they said, yes, that one's taken and instead just gestured to his lap and said, want to sit here instead? No one else heard it, but that, you know, that's an example. What do you do in that moment? Um, you know, that that is really uh, one example. I think often, you know, if, if people are talking about, you know, if they're talking about being pregnant, sometimes, you know, colleagues could say, how did you even find the time? Uh, or we didn't work you hard enough, things like that. Those are microaggressions. Those are things that are, you know, you would never say to a man. If you a male colleague found their spouse is pregnant, you'd say the simple thing, the right thing is to say congratulations or, you know, why place a judgment on that? That is, you know, and we all, I, I, I don't, you know, I don't want to get in the whole debate about pregnancy, but I do think, that there's a different judgment placed on a woman physician once she gets pregnant. And they, there's a lot of different comments said. Um, I, I think, you know, the, there's sexually inappropriate comments. There's things about pregnancy. There's things about childcare when a, a woman needs to get home to, because maybe the school is shut or the child is sick, a, a woman might leave work and people will say, you know, 
you know, that that's where that person is. And there's a different judgment held. If a man has to go and pick up the same child because they're sick or they have a soccer game or whatever, so they're such a great dad. They're involved in their, their children. And that's actually a positive behavior versus a negative behavior when a woman does that. Um, I think what basically all these microaggressions make women feel excluded and make them feel marginalized and make them feel like they're not part or valued in this community. And I think people think that they're uncommon, but I, you know, when we did a survey for the American College of Cardiology, we found them incredibly common. And I think that actually they're probably more common than we even got through our survey, because I think many uh, cardiologists and, and, and physicians in general are so used to them, they don't even think about them. Those are not the big sort of sexist thing that they experienced. You know, they, they've, the big things are when someone, you know, taps your bottom or uh, sexually approaches you or thinks that you should, you know, that they can flirt with you and they're not listening to you when you're actually giving them medical information, whether you're a resident or a fellow. Many people have experienced the sort of blatant things that are clearly wrong. The microaggressions are sort of hidden under the counter, if you will. Wow. So, um, so as, uh, I mean, as, as chief of uh, a major academic institution in the country and and you know you um, you know obviously interact with many trainees and, and fellows and and residents. How do you sensitize them for you know such occurrences? And has there any you know are there any um, institutionalized uh, programs or you know avenues where if such occurrences happen, you know trainees or, you know, forget about, you know, I'm, I'm not saying forget about trainees, but, you know, trainees obviously are important, but trainees or faculty alike can, can go and, and voice their concerns. I mean, is there a forum like that? It's really hard. I, I think, so I'll, maybe my situation's a little different. I, for my fellows, so I also run the, the, the fellowship program. And so for them, I have a zero tolerance both for any, both based on gender or sex or based on race. If they bring anything to me that has been inappropriate, I address it. We have sort of a, a, a way of addressing it and then either removing that person from their training if we think that's a problem that can't be solved. But we try to first bring it up to the person who, who was inappropriate, try to resolve it that way by teaching and then um, but if we can't resolve it, the, especially if it's faculty, they won't be involved with the fellows at least, which usually people want to be involved with the fellows, but if they don't, then I, you know, we're, we have a zero tolerance policy about that for attendings. I'll tell you, it's a much harder. And, and so right now I am the only woman in my fat, in my division and it's a, it's all men. And so it has actually been uh, different. I had hoped that we would be able to attract more female physicians by being a chief. But I think for a lot of the women who have come to look at jobs with us, that seeing just how male dominated it is, it, it has been a, a problem getting them there. Um, 
And I think that, you know, that's a big part of it. I think one of the solutions is to get more female faculty because then you can create a environment that is unaccepting of these behaviors. I I think though it comes from a whole hospital setting. I think that you have to have it from the top down because right now, if I had a faculty member who felt that somebody, you know, somehow that they, they were there is something sexist that occurred to them, um, or affecting their daily work or affecting how they, you know, function, you would have to go in our hospital setting to HR. And I think that. The problem with HR is not that the HR doesn't try to do the right thing, but there's a lot, ultimately they work for the employer. And I think there's a misconception that HR works for us as, as the employees. And I haven't seen in the rare, not, not so rare occasions, I should say, we've actually had occasions where um, people have reported both not, not, physicians, but staff have reported things that have been, you know, anywhere should have caused some repercussions to the physician who did things wrong or in blatant sexist act. And actually, because they were the big money earners of our hospital, they, you know, a slap on the wrist was at best at what we would see would happen. Eventually, what happened to the the staff is the staff eventually felt driven out and did leave. And I knew that would happen because of the lack of response to what the complaint was. Um, and I think that this, you know, we, as a society, we need to start talking about this is happening in medicine where are the women where are the women in leadership if we don't make them feel welcome every step of the way we you know they're not going to join it and they're going to go to either specialties where they feel welcome or they're not going to enter medicine and i i think that would be a shame i think we all benefit from being different than each other from us pointing out things that maybe somebody didn't see it from your viewpoint because you come from a different background than I come from, we can share and we can, we can make medicine a better place. Um, you know, I mean, Hey, I wouldn't have learned about the Kardashian factor if it wasn't for you. Um, so we, we have to, we have so much to learn from each other and, and, you know, the practicality is, is if we can't make our environment more welcoming to 52% of the population, then we're doing something wrong. I see it, you know, it's interesting because I, I think we all have friends in, you know, the business world or, or, you know, other fields and we watch them. And, and I, not to say that everything's perfect in other fields, it's not, but they're very actively trying to engage women in getting them into their pipelines and getting them up to leadership and trying to be accountable. And I, I feel like we're a little bit behind the ball. And I think we're, we're, we're doing much better. I, I will say that the American College of Cardiology, for example, is very forward thinking lately. Like they're looking at who's on their panels and who's on their committees and who's on their writing groups. And I'm chairing a writing group and I was definitely 
told to count how many minorities did I have, underrepresented population on my writing group, how many women did I have. And, and so because I knew I had to fill out that paperwork, I was very conscientious when I was putting together the people that I wanted to work with. But it, you know, I, I, I think I hope I would still be very accountable anyways, but that certainly that reminder that I would have these, you know, something to fill out at the end. It made me also think about who else could we consider to be on this writing group. And and I think we need to do more of that. I think that this is the way. I think even employing people from a medicine standpoint, we should also be, you know, judged on how many people can we get in that are underrepresented in our field. Because if it's a measure that somebody is going to hold you to, you are going to meet that. I think we're all type A. If we're told this is how you get the, the star, then you're like, okay, I'm going to go get the star. And, and I think that making an environment that's welcoming, making um, – people knowing that you can't say this. And I think training needs to happen there, whether it's training at the beginning of medical school, whether it's training when you start residency, whether it's training when you enter a new hospital setting, it should be when you enter a university, you should go through just like we, we want implicit, you know, um, bias training, we should also be very clear about what things are unacceptable. So if you talk to someone, this is, you know, these are the things that are inappropriate. If it has to be spelt out, then spell it out, because maybe that's the thing that people don't realize. They think it's a joke. And we often hear that I was just teasing. I was just kidding. These these are not welcoming to to women, and this is not something that is acceptable. And not that this always works, but I, I mean, sometimes when I've had to talk with staff or faculty about certain behavior, I, I if they have a daughter, it certainly helps to say, "Would you want that to happen to you know your loved ones, whether it's your child or your wife?" do you feel like that's something you would want them to hear? And sometimes just putting it in a way that they can see it through the eyes of someone that they care about, they're more able to understand how that could be hurtful or how that could make them feel like they're not included. Um, and I think we need as a society and as a, a, I think for cardiology specifically, I think we need to have these conversations, but also create our own training of what we, how to, because we're all talking about why has it been stagnant? Why are we still at about 13% women? How, especially the inter, you're in the interventional fields, those fields, even less women in those fields, how are we going to make it better? And we need, we don't just need women at that table because I, I really am against the, let the women solve the problem. We need actively engaged men who also want to see the change. And so on our American College of Cardiology, Women in Cardiology group, we actually include men. It's funny when we go to those meetings at our national meetings, sometimes we'll be with men and we're like, oh, we got to go to ACC WIC. And they'll say, oh, okay, I'm not, I can't come. And usually if I'm with that person, I'm like, no, you're coming with us. And I think that that is all been great to have more men at our meetings and, and to hear that. And have them take that message back. I think uh, many men who have joined us have come back a little shell-shocked. They didn't realize 
how we felt or how things were going down on the ground because they might be acting right, but they didn't realize that so many people were making women feel unwelcome. And we need them. We need them at, we need them spreading the word too to their friends and their colleagues saying, did you know that they feel that way? Did you know that that, it, you know, so many people say that to them? We need to make that right. We can't let that happen in the cath lab or we can't let that happen in meetings anymore. We need to let them finish their, their statement, not cut them off. We need them not to repeat their idea and not let them be heard or, you know, the things that women do actually see happen on a day-to-day basis. Yes. Um, so, well, well, you know, first of all, thank you for being so explicit and, and um, so forthcoming. Um, I'm, I'm actually disappointed um, in, in that, um, in that women colleagues have to go through this undercurrent um, attitude at work, um, you know, uh, you know, our work is, is not easy. I mean, you, you know, this, you know, we deal with extremely sick patients and, um, you know, cardiovascular medicine has always been at the forefront of, uh, you know, innovation and, and breakthroughs in, in medicine. Uh, so it's, it's hard to keep up with everything that's happening. And uh, it's and you know our jobs are hard. Our hours are long. Our patients are sick, and you know they need us. And um, you know we need to be a hundred percent engaged in body, mind, and spirit when we're taking care of them. And we should not be worried about these undercurrents. You know, if for example, if if anything of of this sort, like if a consternation with a colleague, or if I'm feeling that I'm being sabotaged at work, or if I will be a backstab that work if, if that if if i have that um you know um if if i have that feeling i mean not that i have it at my current workplace absolutely not but if if i have that feeling going into work i'm, I'm not comfortable i'm not a hundred percent myself um yeah. i am not able to focus entirely on what i'm supposed to do uh it hampers my productivity it hampers my my focus it, ham- it hampers my uh my intellect and so to, to have a colleague who's equally competent, uh, equally well-trained, um, equally deserving of that position that she's in and taking care of equally sick patients and, you know, delivering equally evidence-based medicine, to have that colleague go through that undercurrent on a daily basis is extremely unsettling to me. Like I am having a visceral response right now, just thinking about having to go through that emotion on a day-to-day basis. And, you know, I, I apologize. I apologize that we have not voiced ourselves enough that this should have like zero tolerance, like you said, absolute zero tolerance at work. This should never happen to a colleague ever. Like this, this should not even be, you know, this should not even be, um, I mean, I mean, it's, it's sad in a way that we have to discuss this, right. And we have to, but, but it's important too. like, we have to, if this is an issue, which it clearly is, it has to be brought to the fore and it has to be tackled head on and absolutely smashed. You know, that's, that's, that's how I, I feel about it. I agree. I think, you know, again, cardiologists are really smart people. And, and I think one of the things is, is we can think of this like a medical problem. Let's try to make the diagnosis and let's try to treat it because we're, 
like you said, we're always thinking about new innovative ways to save lives. We can do the same here to, to create a community that we all want to be part of. There's room for everyone. There's room for men. There's room for women. There's room for transgender people. There is room for all of us, no matter what our race. And I, you know, I, I don't know if just because John Lewis died in the last few days, I think, you know, he his one of his expressions, and I'll probably not get it perfectly right, but he said, if you see something, say something, you know, that, you know, this is, this is one way that people can help their women colleagues in our community. You know, if they hear something being said wrong, you know, intervene, become that active upstander, be that person to speak up in the moment and say, hey, that wasn't really appropriate what you just said to her. Let's make it right. Let's start fresh. Let's like, you know, there's a way to do it to not make somebody totally embarrassed, but hopefully correct the behavior. And for us as women, I think we need to be brave. And sometimes when these microaggressions occur so that they don't happen with the next generation is that speak up respectfully and promptly at that moment, just say, you know, what did you mean by that comment? Or that comment really hurts me and here's why it hurts me. And, and see if you can engage them in a dialogue that can make a difference. Sometimes I agree it might be just sheer ignorance uh, or awareness that that is something inappropriate. And also it's seeing it from your eyes. And, and, and that sometimes helps seeing somebody else's point of view. I think that having men, though, that, you know, are aware and conscientious and can speak up, sometimes it's not possible for the person being aggressed against to speak up for themselves. And sometimes having that person that can go and speak to someone and, and know that they're available and be, that, that can make a big difference to a woman feeling welcome in the community. Of course, it'd be best if it just didn't happen, but things happen. I just think that we need to keep this dialogue going and, and be presenting this on the national stage. And like I said, not just presenting it to women. Women don't need to be told anymore about the things that are going wrong for them or the way that they feel. What we need is active measures of success, programs that work, putting them in place use the science. We're scientists at heart. Let's show what, what things actually work and what things don't work. And But the thing is, the men can't laugh that off and say, oh, we're now doing that training to you know make women feel more safe. They should be the champions of it. We are doing this training to make women feel safe and wanted and respected in our environment. If that's the attitude that everyone takes, we will be better for it. And if they get measured on these measures as well, like how many women can they recruit into their section, into their department, how, you know, papers that they write, are they putting women on their papers? And I know you're, you're a big champion of that. I, I look at people's papers and I, first thing I do is check how many women did they involve in their papers. And, and I see it happening more, but then I'll see certain people that author a lot of papers and they're all with, 
including men. Let's change that because that's a way to also make women see female names on papers and be excited that they're involved in the research, they're involved in the day-to-day -day life of a cardiologist and get them promoted at the same rate too. We have such a double standard for men and women about promotion when they're faculty and we, we need to just have it you know, spelt out for our university. This is how you get promoted. If you check off all those boxes, you're promoted. It shouldn't be, I, I find that some parts of getting promoted are so involved, all these letters and things that need to be written. I think there's probably some of that still needs to be there. But if you check off the boxes, then you meet the criteria, then maybe your letters are ancillary to help you have this reputation. Sometimes you can't measure reputation without the letters. I just think we should be more clear and transparent in everything in medicine. It will make things a lot better for everyone. Yeah, you know, I couldn't agree with you uh, more on transparency. And you know, I think the the promotion process. I mean, having gone through one recently, which you know took 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 eighteen months. I I don't want to be critical about the promotion process um, because I you know I I really don't understand. I'm not on the other side of the table to make. Uh, you, you know, comments, but, you know, you were one of the kind letter writers for, for the promotion. So I, I thank you for that. But I, I, I agree. Um, I think if you objectively can check all the boxes and, you know, if uh, you've demonstrated enough scientific output and, and you've, you've made, you know, reasonable, meaningful contributions on the national stage, I think promotion should be a very objective, um, objective measure clearly. Um, and, you know, it, 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 again, I mean, it just bothers me that for clinician scientists or for, for us who belong to the sciences, where everything is so objectively quantified and measured, why does, um, you know, a task like promotion have to be, have to be based on sex and gender? You know, I, I don't want to believe it happens, but there are data to support that it happens. I mean, it clearly does. Um, so, so that is unsettling to me. And now I want to, I want to touch base on this before we end. Um, and what do you, what do you have to say to people who think that women in medicine or women in cardiology has become a thing and has become a tag and, um, you know, there's this movement and it's actually working against men because I actually get to hear that a lot, quite a bit, believe it or not. And, you know, I, I haven't actually, I, I should have said, I should have said it in to all of them, uh, in, in person and I didn't, but I, I asked myself, okay, you know, where were these voices when women were not being represented and when they're, they're finally now coming together to, you know, stand up and have a voice, we want to curb them again by saying, oh, this is a movement. This is a, a new hashtag. This is a thing, quote unquote. And, uh, you know, it it, it, it almost um, uh, you know I I I don't know if, if if hypocrisy is the right word here, but I, I almost shrugged. You know, I, I just shrugged my shoulders and I, I asked that question to myself. Like I I don't I don't think I want to be a part of that conversation. You know, because I truly feel that you know where were these where were these questions or where were these comments when you know your colleagues were not being represented? What do you have to say about that? 
Well, I'm sure those conversations happen. Of course, I don't probably hear many of them, but I'm sure that they occur. The reality is if we, you know, we know that if we have more, you know, there's a lot of evidence, the more diverse our workforce is, the better it is. The more it looks like your community, the better it will be. They'll bring in different points of view. You'll think of problems in different ways and come up with solutions that are different and, and and novel. And that's what we're about. And I think that there's no reason for us to not want diversity in our workplace. And I think that we, you know, they may think that this is just a hashtag, but I'll tell you, there's, you know, many women in cardiology, they're the only woman, sometimes in their hospital, sometimes in their state, in terms of cardiologists. You, you, there, there is actually, I think, one state with one female, and then there's lots of little hospitals. Even the hospital I'm at in cardiology, I'm the only woman. It's a very lonely existence to not have a little bit like yourself in your workplace. The best thing about the women in cardiology movement is we always have people. We're more connected than we've ever been before. So one thing nice about social media is, yes, we're a hashtag and we can always find a community somewhere and help us solve problems when we don't know what to do, when we do have, whether it's a macroaggression or a microaggression, what should I do about that? Is that something to die on the hill for? What what was your tactic about dealing with this? So I actually think that it's it's a good thing I think that also the fact that our societies are being proactive about displaying their women as leaders or as part of the community will help attract more people that look like that person. That's the reality. And I think that they're being proactive for a reason because they realize that the future has to be more diverse. You can't look at So just put cardiology next to surgery. General surgery can attract far more women than cardiology. And what are they doing differently is they are actively promoting their women in surgery and they're putting more women in prominent places and showing their diversity. We need to do the same thing. So I I don't... I, I think it's a discussion that we should all actively engage in and, and see what is it that they don't like about it. But... I think that a lot of this is maybe f- perhaps feeling threatened, but I, I don't even know why you'd feel threatened. We're not coming, women aren't coming to take over the, we're just trying to enter a really good world. Cardiology is obviously fantastic. That's why we want to be here. And we want more women to be here because it's going to make it more interesting. And it's going to be, you know, there's going to be, we're taking care of a population where 52% are women. So why not have more women? Because as, as even just the issues related to women's hearts have primarily been led by women, not that not exclusively, but a big part of it. So there's things that ha- have been a benefit to our community. I think somebody, I read this article and they labeled um, the medicine in general. I don't, I don't think it was an article just about cardiology, that women live in the pink ghetto, we get paid less, and we have less resources. And I think that, you know, that will happen if you're a minority in the group, 
because you won't be able to speak up for yourself. And the more women we have, the less likely that will happen because eventually we'll get women as, as more likely to be in leadership roles, more likely controlling the money and be able to be more equitable. Um, I think that, again, transparency will help too for that because I, I don't think it's just women that will benefit from it. I think other races will benefit from it because I think that we also know that that race also matters in, in our community as well and probably has very similar experiences. And I think that, you know, even when we talk about issues about having children and childcare and things like that, I'm seeing a younger generation, your generation actually, who, who want to spend time with their kids. And so it isn't a, a female issue anymore. It, it's a, a younger person issue and we'll make it better by attacking it all together and being able to have more flexible work times and working out what are the, you know, what are the important work-life balance things. I just think we can all just join together and make cardiology even more fun than it already is and more equitable and, and a place where everyone wants to work. Because like you said, how can you be doing, you know, tense, uh, you know, high stress procedures when it's a matter of life and death like you do, if you in the back of your mind, you're wondering if you're even welcome there. Yeah, oh, well, well, extremely well put, Martha. And uh, thank you so much for your time on a Sunday. Um, I, I really appreciated the conversation. Um, because I think it's an it's an extremely important topic. And, uh, you know, we need to have more of these conversations. I mean, the, the, one, the one last question that I asked from you was a question that was bothering me lately because I've heard this from so many male colleagues, actually, that, you know, women in cardiology has become a thing. And, you know, for some reason, they felt that they are now being disadvantaged where I, I, I don't think that that's true. I, I honestly do not. And, you know, I, I'm glad I asked that question to you. Um, so, you know, th th thank you once again. Um, any any closing remarks? Any any closing comments um, before we end? My only closing remark is to the women out there that you know are struggling with issues. There is a community backing you and supporting you, and it's filled with great men and women who really want you to succeed. And it's if you don't have that person, then reach out to anyone in the ACC WIC community or, you know, somebody that you know would support you, whether it's male or female, we are here to help each other. And this is, you should not feel alone, even though sometimes it does feel very isolating. Well, great. Thanks again, Martha. And, um, you know, good luck uh, for your trip in Canada. Okay. Thanks, Enquirer. Dear cardiologists, we want to make this podcast about you and for you. So please email us your critical thoughts, comments and questions at podcast at radcliffe-group.com and visit uscjournal.com for more information. You can also follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook and Instagram at Radcliffe Cardiology for daily updates. Join thousands of cardiologists and become a Radcliffian by registering to radcliffecardiology.com. 
you will receive regular newsletters and gain access to hundreds of expert interviews, educational webinars, clinical cases and peer-reviewed articles from our six medical review journals on general cardiology, interventional cardiology, arrhythmia and electrophysiology, cardiac failure and vascular and endovascular surgery. Thank you.